1: Welcome everybody to this episode of The Working Therapist. I'm Hayden Bullock, your host, and today we're actually discussing hypotonia. All you want to know about hypotonia, we're afraid to ask. And so Nikki Grates is our guest, and she is a physical therapist with pediatric developmental therapy. We are so very fortunate to work with Nikki on a regular basis, and we're fortunate to have you here with us today to talk about hypotonia. So thanks, Nikki, for helping us out. You're welcome. So, Nikki, before we get started, let's tell everybody a little bit about you and your background. So, why don't you just kind of tell everybody who you are, what you do with PDT, with us, and physical therapy. Just tell everybody a little bit about yourself.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, I've been working for PDT for the past three years. I'm a physical therapist, and I've pretty much been at our Southern Pines location. I work in a variety of different settings, work at our developmental daycare, Hills Children's Center, where I work with children birth to five years old. I also provide some outreach services for children under three in Moore County, and then I'm also working at the outpatient office in the afternoon, seeing some more older kids, and kids with more orthopedic type issues or kids that just are a little bit older and more school-aged but a little bit about me. I grew Mm -hmm. up a military brat, but my dad retired in Fayetteville. So my family's still located in Fayetteville, North Carolina right now. And I decided to stay kind of close to home, but not quite home. And I'm really close to my family. So I get to see them all the
1: time and love what I do. That's perfect. And I think you actually undersold yourself there, Nikki, because in terms of pediatrics, you've worked at a couple of different developmental day centers we contract with, Hill's Children's Center and the CD and Rayford. And you've worked with kids with a variety of diagnoses at both centers, ranging from, I mean, help me out here with this, but everything from just developmental delays to children who have Down syndrome and spina bifida and various genetic disorders or just various kids who were born prematurely, kids with autism, kids with torticollis. The types of kids you've worked with is vast. And so Nikki is extremely knowledgeable. She is actually really a leader over there at that center for all of our disciplines, PTOT and speech, and really the go-to person at the St. Hills Children's Center in Moore County, for sure. And a lot of times, I think a lot of the glue for that particular group over there. So we are very fortunate to have Nikki here with us today. And I'm so excited. So anytime you get to hang out with you is a good day. So yay for us all. So Nikki, before we get started and talking about hypotonia and tone in general, tell everybody, why did you become a physical therapist?
0: Well, I've kind of grown up around physical therapy. When I was younger, my mom was a physical therapist. Things were a lot different back then, but my aunt's also a physical therapist. So I kind of knew a lot about it growing up and I knew I wanted to help people. And then when I was in college, I hurt my shoulder and I had to get physical therapy. And that kind of solidified it for me that I knew that that's what I wanted to do because I really enjoyed going to therapy and learning about what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And then as far as pediatrics goes, I've always just had a passion with working with kids and I really enjoy being around kids. And when I found out that I could kind of pair those two things together, I knew that that was exactly what I wanted to do.
1: I didn't know your mom was a physical therapist. How cool is that?
0: Yeah, she was a lot of different things, but that's one of them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Besides mom. Yeah. Aren't you a one of four children? Yes. Yeah, so- That's just a career in and of itself. But yeah, I didn't know the whole history of family in the whole physical therapy world. You know, you're Mm -hmm. kind of genetically wired for this. So very cool. All right. So let's start first talking about hypotonia. So to me, I'm a speech therapist, of course. And so I've learned a lot about tone from various physical therapists I work with, but why don't you just first explain a little bit about muscle tone and kind of what that means?
0: Okay, I don't really know if there's a definition of what muscle tone is, more so Mm. how you assess what muscle tone is. Mm. So when you're looking at muscle tone, you're looking at how much resistance there is to a passive stretch depending on the muscle group that you're testing. Mm -hmm. So you can have muscle tone in your postural muscles, like your neck, your back, and your trunk. And then you can have muscle tone, phasic muscle tone, which is in your extremities, like your arms and your legs. And they can be different depending on what you're assessing.
1: Okay, so then there's two types of muscle tone you just said? Yes. Phasic and? Postural. Postural, okay. So when somebody's looking at a child who is low tone, should you go ahead and just assume that they have weak muscles, that they're weaker?
0: It's pretty common with low tone that you're going to have weaker, but it's not necessarily the same thing. Muscle tone and strength are two different things.
1: I'm glad you said something about that because it took me a while to learn that because I would go and thinking, oh, well, they're just low tone. So, of course, everything's already weak, but that's not necessarily the case at all. And physical therapists have taught me that through the years. Yeah. And then just also working with kids you know, and just being more just hands on. I think physical therapists, of course, are hands on because that's what you do. But as a speech therapist, sometimes, you know, you were not quite as hands on. And so I think it's important for all disciplines to understand what normal feels like, low muscle tone feels like, high muscle tone feels like, you know, and the best way I think to do that, if you're a little shy at first, especially maybe for a speech therapist, we're not quite as physical as, of course, a physical therapist, is if you're kind of nervous to find a good physical therapist and just ask them and work with them and get them to help you. Okay, Nikki, so why don't we start talking about the assessment part? Because I know that's where we're going to start since that's what we therapists do. We assess first. So You know, in terms of assessing muscle tone, where do you start? Well,
0: it depends on which type of tone you're assessing. So if you want to look at postural tone, it depends on the age of the child. So a good way to look at it, if you have a younger child or an infant, is by doing ventral suspension. So you're holding them in a prone position and you're looking if they're able to extend up against gravity. Are they able to move their head up and trunk up against gravity? But Mm. then when you're looking at an older child, a good way to look at postural tone is just Have them sit on a bench without foot support and see what their trunk. In posture looks like. A lot of times you'll see a child that has tonal abnormalities or low tone when they're sitting, they're going to have a lot of forward head posture and kyphosis. So mm. that's when you're looking at postural tone. You can either do ventral suspension for a younger child or just look at their sitting posture without foot support if they're older.
1: Why without um, foot support?
0: Well, that's when you're going to see everything that they're using in their core to maintain their posture. With foot support, you're getting that stability through mm. your hips, which can help improve your posture. Posture. and without foot support, you're just looking at what their core muscles are doing.
1: Ah. So I guess you would go from assessing by ventral suspension to when they're sitting, I guess, after they can sit up. Is that the cutoff?
0: Yeah, pretty much.
1: And so when you're doing the ventral suspension, the baby's like, you're holding them in prone and they're not touching anything. You're just holding them up in your hand in prone. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Nice. I like it. So then if that's postural tone, what's phasic tone? How do you assess so- that?
0: Phasic tone, it depends on if you're assessing the upper extremities or the lower extremities. So if you want to look at the upper extremities, you can do scarf sign, Mm -hmm. which is you have the child lay on their back and you're crossing their arm across their body into horizontal adduction and you're feeling for your first resistance. So if a child has normal tone, that first resistance is going to be between the two claviculars, so right about at the sternum. If there's low tone, you're going to have that first resistance fell off. All the way at the contralateral clavicular and then if a child has high tone you're going to feel that first resistance before you even cross midline. So that's for the upper extremities. If you want to look at tone in the lower extremities you can do the popliteal angle test. Mm-hmm. So this is when you're going to have the child lie on their back and you're going to flex their hip up and extend their knee and you're also going to feel for that first resistance. And for a child with normal tone that first resistance is going to be about six degrees for a one to three year old and then then that angle increases as a child gets older. And once they're over five, that first resistance should be felt at about 26 degrees. Hmm. And then those numbers will be lower for a child with low tone and higher for a child with hypertonia. Hmm.
1: Okay. And this information, the specifics of what Nikki's saying now will be in the handouts or in the show notes. So if you're not able to write all this down as she's talking, that'll be there. So no stress. Okay. So, and that's just for general assessment of tone, what you just yes. talked about. Is that right? So now if we move into hypotonia, why don't you kind of describe and explain that?
0: Okay, So with hypotonia, this is when your muscles are going to be slow to initiate a muscle contraction and they're also contracting very slowly in response to a stimulus. Muscles with low muscle tone, they have a hard time maintaining a contraction for as long as a normal muscle. One way I really like to describe hypotonia to a lot of my parents is say you've had a really busy day, you've worked 10 hours, then you had to go to the grocery store, then you had to cook dinner you had to get the kids ready for bed and you finally lay down on the couch and right when you lay down someone rings your doorbell so you have to give everything you can to get back up off the couch go answer the door that's what children with hypotonia feel with pretty much every muscle contraction they're making it's having to really get that energy up to move against gravity and to perform the movement that they want to do
1: Hmm, that's a great example. That was yesterday for me. <laughs> but, uh, but that's a great example. And also, I like the description part of it. So that's a real struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just kind of gives you a good perspective of what they may be dealing with on a regular basis. Where another little child's like popping up and jumping up in circle time with the teacher calls his name to jump up. And then another child, if it takes that much energy and effort to get up out of the chair to initiate... The teacher may think, oh, well, they're just not interested or they're not engaged and they don't want to do it. But if they're struggling that much, wow, yeah, I wouldn't want to get out of my chair either.
0: Mm -hmm. It's just a good perspective to have so that you don't get frustrated Mm -hmm. as a therapist when a child's getting tired and they're not moving as much as you'd want them to. You just have to think that it's more work for their muscles to contract to perform a skill.
1: Yeah, that's great. I love that. And it's a great description for parents. I love that. So how does that happen? How do you get to have hypotonia? Like, how does this develop?
0: Well, hypotonia is usually a symptom of an underlying disorder. Mm. And there's a lot of different reasons that a child can have hypotonia. It can be anything from a central nervous system, abnormality, peripheral nervous system. It can come from a disorder of the muscle itself, or the neuromuscular junction. And then you can even have hypotonia from a hypofunctioning vestibular system.
1: And then is it associated with certain diagnoses, like automatic or no?
0: Well, it would depend on what the cause is. So I think we're going to go into that in a little bit. Um, If it's a central nervous system cause, there are certain diagnoses that are more common under that category versus peripheral nervous system or a hypofunctioning vestibular system.
1: Okay. So hypotonia and weakness aren't the same thing necessarily.
0: No, but you almost always do have weakness with hypotonia, Mm -hmm. but it's not the same thing. So with weakness, that's going to be the inability of the muscle to generate sufficient tension for postural control and active movement, where hypotonia is coming from the muscle itself and their ability to recruit the motor units and the timing of their activation. Ah. And so you can increase muscle strength with strength training, but the tone of the muscle is different, so you can't increase tone.
1: Hmm. Okay, so you can increase muscle strength. But does that mean then you can also improve hypotonia too, since there are two different things?
0: Well, if you have hypotonia, you're probably generally always going to be a little bit more flexible, just not have... As much firmness in your muscles, Mm
1: -hmm. but
0: you can prevent injuries and protect the joints by strength training and strengthening the muscles and the ligaments that protect those joints. Yes,
1: that does make sense. So, why don't you sort of paint a picture for us and for people who are listening? So, like, what does hypotonia look like? Like, clinically, when you look at a child, what are you going to see?
0: So, like we talked about earlier, you're almost always going to see decreased strength in a child with hypotonia, and then you're going to see hypermobility of the joints with increased flexibility. Children tend to be, I guess, a good word to use is floppy. So they Mm -hmm. have that decreased state of readiness for movement, kind of like that example I was talking about before. These kids usually need some kind of external support because they have a hard time with weight bearing and sustaining postural control against gravity. For speech therapists and feeding therapists out there, you can commonly see feeding and respiratory difficulties with children with hypotonia. They usually have some delayed motor skills and overall decreased activity tolerance.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So are these the kids that are going to have bad posture or would they always have bad posture?
0: Well, you can help retrain posture and strengthen their core so that they're aware of their posture. But subconsciously when they're sitting, the tone in their muscles just aren't going to support them upright as well as if they had normal muscle tone.
1: Gotcha. And how about kids with hypertonia? Do they have like poor body awareness?
0: Yes. So with that hypermobility in the joints, they're not getting as much proprioception through Mm -hmm. the joint. So they're not getting as much input on where their body is in space. So they can have a lot of coordination deficits and proprioceptive deficits as well.
1: Mm. Who knew I had so many questions about this? (laughs) <laughs> but I, I do. <laughs> it's actually a, extremely interesting in a very nerdy therapist kind of way, but I thought it was extremely interesting. Okay. So we know what hypertonia is. We know some of the characteristics of hypertonia, what a child may look like who experiences a lot of hypertonia or what do you say? Hypertonicity? Yeah. Okay. There you go. So Nikki, then is this a good place for us to talk about the causes of hypertonia? Yeah,
0: that's a great time.
1: All right. Well, enlighten us.
0: Okay. Um, So, there's a lot of different causes of hypotonia. So, it can be from the central nervous system, peripheral nervous system. It can come from the muscle itself or the neuromuscular junction, and it can even come from a hypofunctioning vestibular system. So, First, I'm going to talk about the central nervous system hypotonia, which is the most common. It accounts for 66 to 88% of the cases, and this is where you'll see your genetic chromosomal disorders, which is over 31% of the central nervous system hypotonia causes, and Uh you can also see some structural brain anomalies, myopathies, spinal muscular atrophy, and even muscular dystrophy. So when you're looking at central nervous system hypotonia, you can have benign congenital hypotonia, which is just hypotonia at birth, where you're going to see persisting motor coordination difficulties, and you're going to see tone improve over time. You'll also see your chromosomal disorders that'll fall in this category. So your Down syndrome, Angelman syndrome, or Prader-Willi. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then you can also see brain malformations. Most commonly, what I see is agenesis of the corpus callosum, which can also cause hypotonia. In Mm -hmm. addition to those ones, you can also see children that have had brain injury, any kind of injury from intracranial hemorrhaging, a central nervous system infection or trauma, hydrocephalus, any of those can cause hypotonia. And then the other two that are not as common, but your neurometabolic disorders and some spinal cord dysfunction can also cause hypotonia. Gotcha. Uh, Some of the major characteristics if you're looking at a central nervous system cause of hypotonia is when a child isn't going to be able to sustain their postural control and you're going to see a lot of decreased weight bearing whether it be through their feet or their hands if you're working on crawling. They're usually going to have delayed motor milestones and their deep tendon reflexes are going to be intact because that's a peripheral loop. That doesn't go all the way up to the brain for your deep tendon reflexes. A lot of times you'll see dysmorphic features, especially with your chromosomal disorders. You'll see decreased motor coordination and difficulty with coordinating movements. They usually, with central nervous system, have adequate strength. So they show anti-gravity movement, but they don't have the endurance and they can't sustain it. Mm -hmm. And you also see a lot of additional deficits such as behavior issues, cognitive deficits, impaired neurological function, and spasticity with the central nervous system causes.
1: Hmm. I know a lot of people that would fit into that category. (laughs) So so yeah, you described some of my most favorite people in the world right there. There you go. Okay, so then that covers all of those in the central nervous system category. So then what's next, Nikki?
0: So then you can go into peripheral nervous system causes, which isn't quite as common, but you still see some of this. And that can include just spinal muscular atrophy. And with that, you're going to see hypotonia at birth Earth but you'll also see proximal and distal weakness. You can also see poliomyelitis and peripheral neuropathy in the central nervous system categories.
1: Okay, so those are the types of diagnoses that go with the peripheral nervous system hypotonia, right, Nikki? Yes. And following, right? Okay, good. So talk to us about the characteristics. What will you see clinically?
0: You'll commonly see muscle fasciculation, so you'll see some of that muscle twitching. They also have delayed motor milestones, but this is where you're going to see decreased or absent deep tendon regions reflexes. Mm -hmm. So the reason for that is when you're testing a deep tendon reflex, the stimulus is coming in and it's, instead of going through the spinal cord up to the brain, it's going to go through the afferent fibers and into the inner neuron. And then it's going to come right back out to the motor unit. So it's not going to do that full loop all the way up to the brain. And so that's why it's more of a peripheral characteristic to see those deep tendon reflexes decreased or absent. You're also going to see some muscle atrophy and impaired strength, but with peripheral nervous system hypotonia, the abnormality is usually just limited to the muscular system.
1: Huh. And the muscle fasciculations, really, you're not going to see those with the central nervous system, just the peripheral nervous system? Yep. Huh. Because I see that a lot with kids when I'm doing some oral motor stuff with their tongues and everything, and so I just... Interesting. Hmm. We'll have to do a little bit more research. Just note to self. There you go. So for those of us who don't know as much about this as you do, and that's a lot of us, (laughs) can you just sort of do a recap and sort of maybe compare central nervous system to peripheral nervous system?
0: Sure. So when you're looking at central nervous system versus peripheral in central nervous system, you are going to have some, or you're going to have adequate strength, whereas peripheral, you're going to have poor to no strength, and you're going to have some anti-gravity movements in central nervous system, but you won't have any for peripheral. So for central nervous system, you're going to see decreased, or you could have increased deep tendon reflexes it kind of just depends on the child and you're going to have slow placing reactions which are some of those protective responses Mm -hmm. whereas in peripheral nervous system disorders you're going to see no deep tendon reflexes or they're very diminished and you're not going to see any of those placing reactions. In central nervous system, you'll have motor delays, but it's also common to have cognitive delays, and the head circumference may be smaller than normal, whereas peripheral nervous system, it's really just going to be those motor delays, and you're not going to have the cognitive delays. And like I mentioned before, in peripheral nervous system, you'll see some fasciculations, and you can have some joint contractures that are
1: possible. Okay, wow, yeah, that's good. That's just a good review of the central nervous system versus peripheral nervous system for everybody. And, you know, actually, this is like a little aside, but I think... These types of reviews are good for therapists to do, generally speaking, anyway, just to keep ourselves current because you learn all this stuff in graduate school. But sometimes when you don't use a lot of it, you lose it. So I think it's good to go back and just do a general anatomy, physiology review sometimes, you know. So thank you for that. Okay, so what's next then? We just compared the two.
0: Well, we've looked at central nervous system and peripheral nervous system as causes Mm -hmm. for hypotonia. But then you can also have disorders in the neuromuscular junction or of the Uh. muscle itself, which aren't as... Common, But some of the things you'll see that kind of fall under this category or your myasthenic syndromes or infant botulism or your muscle disorders can be any of your myopathies or muscular dystrophies.
1: Mm, Gotcha.
0: That kind of fall into that category.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Okay.
0: And then the last kind of cause of hypotonia can be from a hypofunctioning vestibular system. Hmm. And this is some newer research that came out that Bodensteiner did a study in... Four children out of the 31 in their study had hypotonia and hearing loss. So, they looked at whether if it was due to a hypofunctioning vestibular system. And they found that children with this type of hypotonia, they tend to outgrow it as they age. Hmm. And so basically all that information is just recommending that if you have a child with hypotonia and you're concerned that it might be this cause to include a hearing assessment. And if you're really concerned and want to look at the vestibular apparatus, you can do a CT scan to look at the temporal bone and that vestibular system.
1: Well, and then, you know, all the sp- speech therapists out there giving you a shout out because we all believe that everybody should have a hearing assessment so there you go (laughs) and that makes sense to me because you know when you're looking at kids who have various genetic anomalies and things you know hearing is tied to so many different chromosomal areas that you know if you have deficits to different chromosomes you could have a hearing loss so that just makes perfect sense to me. And we did a shout-out for the speech people out there. Whoop, whoop. Okay, (laughs) so now we're going to talk about assessment. We take all this good information about what the causes are and what a child may clinically look like. And, of course, with every good assessment, you're observing first. So where do you start when you're looking at a child with hypotonia?
0: Okay, well typically you're going to get your subjective information. So you're going to talk to the parent, get all their background information like you would do for any child. But some of the things to really hone in on when you're evaluating a child with hypotonia is asking what their typical schedule is. How much time are they lying on their back or on their stomach? How much time do they spend in a container device such as a stroller or a car seat or things like that? You want to ask what their position for feeding is and whether they have any difficulty with feeding. Mm -hmm. You want to ask what their general arousal is and do they move a lot or are they pretty stationary? You always want to ask about medications and any medical complications with any child, but especially with hypotonia as well. And another good question to ask is about their sleep pattern. Are they sleeping well or are they having a difficult time sleeping? And Mm -hmm. then you always want to ask about their atlantoaxial instability. So have they been x-rayed or cleared or are there any neurological concerns that could be associated with that? And then another good question to ask is just about vision and if they've noticed any concerns with depth perception or tracking objects or things like that.
1: Hmm. And then why the sleep pattern?
0: Well it's pretty common for children with Down syndrome to have obstructive sleep apnea and it's easier for them to breathe inside lying. So it's a recommendation that you can give for them.
1: All right, good. So all of those are great. You kind of do those with your medical history, medical information. Is that kind of the category you put this in, background information?
0: Yeah. So when I first evaluate a child, I always have a conversation with the parent first. And these are just some of the questions I make sure that I ask.
1: I love that. That gives you a good overall picture of the child then. And so when you're assessing, we look at the whole child. With all of that, you're getting a nice, good whole child picture. Okay, so then after you've gotten a good medical background information, history, get a picture of the whole child, then what kind of objective measures are you using to assess?
0: Well, in the course that I went to, some of the ones that she recommended specifically for hypotonia are the Infant Neurological International Battery, the Movement Assessment of Children, Gross Motor Function Measure, and then you can just do developmental testing like the Peabody Developmental Motor Scales or the BOT for those older, more functional kids.
1: Yeah, the BOT. Oh, bless us all. (laughs) (laughs) That just can be a doozy, that's all. A good assessment, though. Hey, a good assessment. It just can be a long one. But hey, it gives you a lot of good info. So okay. So what do you do next with all those? You mentioned several of them. Which ones do you prefer? Or what do you normally do?
0: Well, you can kind of just pick and choose. But in the course, she did go into like what's good about some of them and kind of why to choose one. So for the first one, when you're looking at the Infant Neurological International Battery, Mm. it's just a quick screen. And it's going to do a lot of those tests I talked about at the very beginning, like your scarf sign, your popliteal angle, Ah. things like that, just to look at muscle tone. But the items in this have a pretty low reliability. And it's kind of questioning whether you're assessing muscle tone muscle extensibility or ligamentous laxity, you're just kind of going through those motions and feeling for that first resistance. So it's hard to tell what you're truly assessing with that one, but okay. it can kind of give you a good overall picture.
1: Huh. And then this is a standardized test, right?
0: Yes. You can Google INFANIB mm-hmm. or the Infant Neurological International Battery, and it'll show you a picture of all the little check marks that you can do with it.
1: So then another assessment you talked about was the movement assessment of children, the MAC. Is that right?
0: Yes. And this is actually a pretty good one. It looks at both fine and gross motor control, and it can be done in 30 minutes or less with just observation. So you don't even have to handle the child for some of those kids that are slower to warm up. You're just observing what they're doing. This is for children from 2 to 24 months. And some of the like nice things about it is it's general observation it looks at their behavioral state and their nervous system stability. It looks at all their senses, visual tracking, peripheral, hearing, all of those things. And then it looks at arms, legs. It looks at left side versus right side. And it also looks at primitive reactions and reflexes and also assesses that muscle tone that we've been talking about.
1: Well, it looks like it gives you a lot of good information and you're not even handling the child really yet. So it can be, I guess, for a child who's, like you said, a little bit slower to warm up. It's not so intrusive. It's pretty hands-off and they can kind of get comfortable with their environment.
0: Yeah. I really wish it went up older than two years. I just really think it could be a great test to use, but I don't know if it's really appropriate for just two years.
1: Right. So then for this assessment, would it be appropriate? I mean, I know that sometimes I give tests to kids who maybe it's not normed for, but, you know, you said you'd like for it to go up to older than age two. But could you use this test for a child who's maybe older than two, but maybe functioning at a level that's younger than two?
0: I'm not sure if you could get any norms from it, but I still Mm -hmm. think it would just be good as an observation tool on what to look for, Mm -hmm. especially for a newer therapist, giving you ideas of what a child should be doing developmentally. So even if they're five, if they're still presenting developmentally under two years old, I think it would still be useful. I just don't think you could get anything normed from it.
1: Right. Yeah, but it give you a lot of good information to write your plan mm-hmm. of care, like you said. I love that. I think that's great. And it also kind of breaks things down to nice categories. So it helps, like you said, for a newer therapist, just, just organize your plan of care, organize where you want to go. I could see a lot of good uses for that. Okay. And then the next one you said, which was what?
0: The gross motor function measure. So oh, the yeah. GMFM. Mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone's heard of. Yes. It's more associated typically with cerebral palsy or hypertonia but it's criterion reference for children with Down syndrome as well. So they don't just look at that hypertonia piece with it. They also look at the hypotonia piece. So Mm. it's a really good test to do because with those children with Down syndrome, you can compare them to other children with Down syndrome rather than to norms to kind of see where they're falling there. And it's also more responsive to motor change over time with children with Down syndrome when you're comparing it to some of the
1: other tests. When you say more responsive to motor change so are you saying it more clearly assesses kind of where they were and where they've gone to like the progress they've made?
0: In a way and if progress isn't as big as you hope and it's just smaller gains it can more focus on those smaller gains.
1: Okay and sometimes those quality and smaller gains assessments are important to note and to talk about because it helps with the quality of movement and then also maybe helps with the justification for the insurance company so you can get coverage Mm -hmm. because you can show progress. Sometimes I struggle with that, and I know some of us all struggle with that in terms of Justifying the continued therapy with insurance company with kids who maybe don't show major change in six months, but definitely have change in quality of change. So any standardized assessment to help with that is a good tool to have in your toolbox. So basically, in this podcast so far, we've defined tone. We've talked about hypertonia. We've talked about the causes or where the hypertonia came from, and then how functionally, like the characteristics of various types of hypertonia and how a child may present when they come in the clinic or the office or the school or wherever therapists may see them. And then we've talked about a few assessment measures. That's right. All right. So now we're going to do the good old tune in next time, people, like on the TV, where we talk about the (laughs) pick, which they have heard about already because we talked about that in the first part of this series in the Tortocollis podcast. And if you didn't hear the Tortocollis podcast, people, then you need to go back and listen to those two because they are rocking, just like this one is. Tons of good information, but just like this podcast. Nikki, there's so much good information here. Oh, my heavens to mercy. You are full up of good info, a wealth of knowledge so the next podcast we're going to do on this topic is we're going to go through the pick you're going to talk about that and the assessment using that tool which I'm very excited about because I love that assessment and then we're going to talk about some other assessments is that what you're thinking
0: yep that sounds about right I'll go into a lot of detail on what to look at in the pick and then just a few other things you might want to look at um, during your initial
1: assessment and let me tell you people, you're in for a treat because to see Nikki in action is awesome and to hear talk about it is awesome. So I'm I'm excited. Hot dog. A lot of good learning opportunities and good functional. That's one of the things that Nikki does so well. She makes this information. She takes it all. This very complicated stuff and makes it very functional, life applicable, so that little people that we treat and little kiddos get better. Love it. Yep. And so we probably should do a shout out mention to the class that you went to where a lot of this information came from. So could you tell us all the name of the class you went to and where you got some of the framework for this podcast? The course
0: was called Getting the Picture, P-I-Q, Assessing uh-huh. and Treating Common Pediatric Patients, and it was presented by Michelle Linehan, and it went over just some common diagnosis you see within the pediatric population, such as torticollis, hypotonia, hypertonia, and also prematurity.
1: Some of the information that you talked about today came from that class, as well as also just what you know and your working knowledge, and so we just wanted to make sure we referenced that class some of the information came from that class so um, again a reference for that class is on the show notes and then all the stuff that Nikki has talked about so far is on the show notes plus the assessments that you talked about so far and kind of where you could get those websites for getting those so if you're interested in finding out more about those assessments you can read up from there and again like I said the first in the series were the two podcasts on Torticalis with Samantha Arrett a co-worker of Nikki's and mine so go and listen to those if you haven't heard of those were great and please print out the handouts from this because there's tons of information that Nikki went over that you really need to have in your hands because it's great functional really good stuff to use like today so thank you Nikki so much I can't wait for part two
0: all right well thank you for having me Hayden I enjoyed it
1: yeah thank you again Nikki it was fantastic so much good information it is a treat to work with Nikki daily and to just be able to glean some of that info All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for spending some time with Nikki and myself today. And we'll catch you next time on another episode of The Working Therapist.
0: Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Working Therapist, an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. If you would like more information regarding this podcast or would like to get in touch with us for any reason, visit us on the web at www.pediatricdt.com. That's PediatricDT.com.